Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 20th of November. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith. And also here this week are Hannah Critchlow. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Hannah's a neuroscientist, so we're going to have lots of brain fun coming up. And uh, our favourite, Dave Ansell, the kitchen science guru. Hello, Dave. Hello. Now, we're taking on your science questions this week. It is a science phone-in, and we'll be finding out whether paragliding through a thundercloud places you at risk of being hit by lightning, how many germs there are lurking on a banknote, and is new technology altering how our brains work. And we've also got news this week of particles travelling faster than light. Scientists have repeated the experiments that found neutrinos breaking Einstein's famous light speed limit. And in kitchen science, we'll be doing an experiment that makes this noise. You can have a go to, grab a balloon and a coin or a metal nut, and I'll explain what you have to do and why it's important very shortly. Thank you, Dave. If you have any questions or any comments for us, tweet in to at Naked Scientists, run our Facebook page, which is at facebook.com slash the Naked Scientists, or why not drop us an email? Our email address, chris at the Naked Scientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. And we are answering all of your science questions and off to a flying start to find out about paragliding and other dangerous sports in thunderstorms. Andrew, hello, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris and Dave. Welcome. What can we do for you? If you were to skydive through an active storm cloud, uh, assuming that lightning strikes were occurring, are you at particular risk of getting struck? And if you were to be struck, would the result be the same as if you were standing on the ground? Do you partake in such dangerous pursuits, Andrew? Uh, I do not, especially not through storm clouds. (laughs) That's probably very wise. Um, If you're in a storm cloud, um, then essentially you're in something which isn't a very good conductor. Most of your air, you've got a bit of water as raindrops in there, but it's not a very good conductor. And so um, if you're there, especially if you've got a a wet parachute above your head, then you're actually acting there a bit like a big long wire, which means that if a lightning bolt is coming somewhere in that broad area, it's probably going to find a shortcut, essentially down your parachute through through the ropes, down through you and out your, your feet. And certainly planes get hit by lightning quite a lot, but they're made out of aluminium and that's a very good conductor and sort of acts a bit like a lightning conductor, although I don't think it's particularly good for them. But I think skydiving, you would probably have similar effects to if you've been hit on the ground, possibly slightly less intense, but I think it would be pretty messy. Ouch. Dave, can I ask you a question which has occurred to me? And thanks for the question, Andrew. It was very good. If you're in a lake and it's fresh water, because you're a bag of salt as a living being, and you're therefore a better conductor than poorly ionised fresh water, are you more likely to come off worse if the lightning hits the lake than if you were doing the same sort of swimming around in the sea? 
Yes, very definitely. Um, certainly, in, there's lots of instructions if you live in a place where there's a lot of lightning strikes, that as soon as there's any possibility of lightning, get out of the water, because the lightning will hit the water, then that current is going to spread out circularly from the lightning. And if you're anywhere near that, that current's going to go through you rather than through the water, and you'll get a fairly serious shock. Super. So don't go swimming in fresh lakes in thunderstorms, but maybe slightly safer in the sea. Chris is on the line. Hello, Chris. Hello. What can Hi. do for you? Well, mine's about the brain, actually. Um, I was reading something about Susan Greenfield and uh, her worries about uh, the effect on our brains. And I wanted to ask you whether you, what your view is, whether you think it's true and real, or do you think she's a little bit, sort of exaggerating a little bit? This whole idea that by plugging ourselves into the internet 24-7, wandering yeah. around with Twitter open on a mobile phone, so we're yeah. always continuously being yeah. bombarded with information... And also, like <laughs> well, well, many people, and also young kids as yeah. well, I think, because exactly. children, instead of going and having talk and chalk in the classroom, are now being sort of plugged in from an increasingly young age. My own daughter, mm-hmm. at, at the age of four, knows how to use YouTube. I mean, I guess that's what you're getting mm-hmm. at. Is, is there an wow. impact on our health and on our brain health? Yes, exactly. Let's ask Hannah. Hannah, what do you think? Well, there have been no causal studies done in either direction so far. So the question you're asking is, mm. is, new, is technology leading to a change in the brain? So not the other way yeah. around. Does, uh, for example, are certain types of brain predisposed to use or take advantage of new technology? So there's been no causal studies, but there have been several correlational studies. And a correlation does not imply causation. So Professor Durant Rees from University College London published a study on the 19th of October in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B on how the structure of focal parts of the brain are correlated with the size of our online social networks, specifically Facebook friends. So the more friends you've got, he's asking, is there a relationship with the size of certain bits of your brain? Exactly. And he found that um, people with a higher number of Facebook friends had uh, a higher amount of grey matter, the brain tissue where the processing is done, in several regions of the brain. And one of these regions was the amygdala, an almond-shaped structure that's associated with processing memory and emotional responses. And there was um, size changes in other regions um, that related to perceiving moving objects and also linked to memory and navigation. So navigating, for example, through online social networks. But again, this comes back to the point that Chris made, which is that how do we know this is cause or effect? I mean, you started yourself saying this may be association, not causal. So how does the Garrett Rees study there show that these people have these brain changes because they use these technologies, not just because they already have those changes and that makes them more likely to use the technology? Well, exactly. And the researchers are keen to stress that they found a correlation and not a cause. So, in other words, it's not possible to say from the data whether having more Facebook friends makes the regions of the brain larger or whether some people are hardwired to have more friends. So, at the moment, it's unclear whether new technology leads to changes in the brain rather than vice versa. So, there's lots of scientific debate about that at the moment, and we're trying to get hard, robust data. Hello, thank you very much. A bit like the taxi driver study, where they showed taxi drivers in London who have the knowledge had a bigger hippocampus compared with non taxi drivers, but then again, we don't know if it's cause or effect. Leo Mandelbrot in Second Life says, I would much rather have an iPad than the pens and ink wells that we had in my grade school years. Dave, tell us about this fascinating neutrino repeat experiment because we reported about a month ago that scientists said they'd broken the physical speed limit and they had particles going faster than light. Everyone said, mm, bit dubious, better do it again. And they have? Yeah, that's right. In September, results indicating that neutrinos can travel faster than the speed of light were released. This week, the same group has released further data. The experiment is actually spread out between CERN near Geneva and a neutrino detector near Rome called OPERA, over 700 kilometres away. 
In CERN, groups of protons flying around the Large Hadron Collider ring are redirected down an alternative route and crash into a lump of graphite. This produces a variety of particles but includes a large number of particles called mesons. These have a very short lifetime and fly down a kilometre-long tube where some of them decay to form an electron and a neutrino. These neutrinos hardly interact with any matter, so they easily pass through 700 kilometres of solid rock um, to the opera detector where a tiny proportion of them crash into a lump of lead and that produces a signal which can be detected. The experiment was designed to investigate whether neutrinos change over time and to measure how much slower than the speed of light they travel, which would give useful information about their mass and behaviour. The very surprising result was that they appeared to be travelling the distance about 60 nanoseconds, 16 billionths of a second faster than the speed of light. So that's about 25 parts in a million faster than they should be. Can I just ask you, Dave, how do they know that? In other words, how do they know when they should arrive and when they did arrive? They measure very, very accurately um, when actually the mesons, which didn't decay, crash into a detector at the end of the CERN part of the experiment. And those are travelling at pretty much the speed of light, so that essentially tells you when they pass that point. And then they have another very accurate clock at the other end, which measures when they um, hit the detector in Italy. And they use GPS satellites, which have got incredibly accurate clocks, to sync those two clocks to fractions of a nanosecond. And so they should be getting the same number at both ends. And apparently these particles are arriving a bit too early compared with light. Yeah, a tiny fraction too early. So after the first set of results they got, there were various suggestions of how they could improve their experiments because this is a very, very surprising experiment and it would indicate fundamentally new physics and extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So one thing they did was get a more accurate position of the two places because if the position was off by 180 metres, that would explain the problem they've got. Um, They've also made the bunches of protons much shorter because if you've got a great big long bunch of protons, it's very hard to know exactly where the middle of it was. So they've made them shorter so they can know the timings more accurately. But it seemed to give exactly the same result. This is so they found they're faster than light again? They found it faster than light by about the same amount. So either there's a real effect there or there's the same error arriving again. And there's still a lot of evidence to overcome because in 1987 there was a supernova in the Large Magellanic Cloud which produced both light and neutrinos. And they both arrived here a few hours apart. Now, if there was the same difference of, of speeds as you were getting from the CERN experiment, you'd expect them to be two years apart because it's 160,000 light years away. So in that time, it should have spread out miles and miles. Do neutrinos come in different flavours? In other words, is there any possibility that under certain circumstances they could go at different speeds, which would account for this? The neutrinos which they're making at CERN are higher energy than the ones which were coming from the supernova. So it, it, there is still the possibility that maybe certain types of neutrinos go faster than the speed of light, but I wouldn't start um, ordering that superluminal faster than the speed of light dr- space drive yet. I think you'd be lucky. <laughs> and what are the implications for physics? If this turns out to be right, and it, it isn't uh, a mistake in the experimental technique, what does this mean for physics? Well, a lot and not very much at the same time. A lot because the whole of relativity is built around the assumption that the speed of light is a constant and you can't go any faster than it. And a lot of physics is built around the theory of relativity. But saying that, not very much because every experiment we've done so far hasn't found this effect. So if this is a real effect, it's a very, very subtle effect. So in everyday life and most high energy physics experiments, it wouldn't have any effect at all. 
but it's just possible that to actually get the theories absolutely right, you might have to completely rewrite them. But I think still the odds are that they've made a mistake in the results, so I wouldn't start ordering your faster than light space drive yet. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dave. Certainly a tough one, isn't it? We'll have to see where that one goes. Les is on the line. He's an over. Hello, Les. Hello. Um, some while back I was watching a programme on TV and uh, the presenter there was on about the flu pandemic of uh, 18, 1918, and the apparently the according to the way he was speaking, the flu travel was travelling faster across such places as Alaska, Canada, Soviet Russia, etc., because of the you know, they hadn't got the modern day transport. And uh, this particular presenter's theory was: has it come from space? And just wonder what your views on it was. Okay, Les, very good question, very topical too, because we're expecting flu to arrive in the UK at any moment. There are lots of people out there scrutinising what's coming into testing laboratories all over the country to start logging the arrival of the virus and then tracking where it goes. And the fact is that flu is an infection of humans and that to infect someone, you have to come into contact with a virus that a person has made. We know where flu comes from. It comes originally from birds, and specifically aquatic birds. They infect humans, but also other animals, like pigs. And periodically, uh, humans infect a pig with a strain of human flu. A bird infects a pig with a strain of bird flu. The pig mixes the two together, and you produce a new strain, a pandemic strain, that comes back out of the pig, and it goes back into the people. Uh, actually, how it spreads, though, is again down to either birds or humans. Now, birds can fly. And that means that even though people can't necessarily walk across the ground surface more than a certain speed, birds can carry infections very, very quickly because they can fly very quickly. So certainly some of the pandemics that we've seen in the past probably were accelerated or assisted in their spread by animal movements. But nowadays, this has been really brought down to be a, a minor contribution because the, the dynamics of human populations are absolutely huge. In the year 2000, the, uh, work, the House of Commons Working Party, there was a government working group assembled to look at air travel. And they estimated that at any moment in time, there was about 500,000 people airborne around the earth at any moment. And the reality now is that where historically, if you'd wanted to go from, say, Sydney, Australia to London, then it would have taken you months to do that journey. And if you were incubating something in Sydney when you left, by the time you got to London, you would either be dead or better. Now, because of air travel, you can be on the other side of the world in less than the time it takes you to develop symptoms of an infectious disease, which means you can leave, be fully infectious and infecting people en route, and you won't even know you're ill yet. And so as a result, these pandemics are being accelerated or the risk of their transmission is being accelerated by modern air travel and we saw this with SARS in a very big way we don't think that flu comes from space there are some people who do think that but we don't think that that's true we have a pretty good idea as to how it spreads but we certainly have to keep our eye on modern transport because it's a big worry because if we aren't very vigilant and we don't watch what people have and where they go with it and what animals have and where they go with it then as the population increases we're going to see more and more risks of this kind of thing happening you just have to look at what happened with SARS in 2003 that got to thousands and thousands of people 8,000 people in a very short time at a, at a time when the world was gearing up for um, a weapons of mass destruction release because we thought Saddam Hussein was going to unleash uh, weapons of mass destruction of an infectious nature on the world and luckily he didn't um, but the whole world was primed for that to happen and SARS still ripped through all of that without too much trouble but it's a really interesting question and thank you for that Hannah here's one uh, for you which is coming on Facebook if you'd like to send us a question incidentally it's uh, 
facebook.com slash the naked scientist nishnea says how do neuroenhancing drugs work maybe you better begin by telling us what a neuroenhancing drug is Well, neuroenhancing drugs are also called cognitive enhancers, or they're known as smart drugs, and they're basically pharmacological substances that are thought to improve certain aspects of cognition and brain function. The important point about this is that pharmacological influences on cognition are not completely understood, and cognition itself is a very complicated and multifaceted aspect of brain function. It encompasses numerous mental functions, including attention, executive function, planning, problem-solving and inhibition, spatial, verbal, learning and memory. And cognitive enhancers include, for example, methylphenidate, also known as Ritalin, which is prescribed for the treatment of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, also known as ADHD. Ritalin has also been brought over the internet and taken for cognition. It's thought to increase the concentration of neurotransmitters, which chemical messages in the brain, um, and specifically thought to increase the concentration of dopamine and noradrenaline by blocking their reuptake, so that then these neurotransmitters are freely available to land on their receptor and activate the the nerve cells there. How exactly this leads to an increase in certain cognitive aspects isn't really known. So so it's a new area, really, cognitive enhancers, and and neuroscientists are trying to understand a bit more about it. There was a rather worrying stat, wasn't there, that I think the Nature, the journal, did a survey, and something like one person in five who was an academic said that they had or would definitely take these drugs if they thought it would buy them an extra night's work ahead of an important deadline. Yeah, it seems to be a trend for an increased prevalence in there's an increased number of people that are um, going onto the internet and buying these cognitive enhancers, which is quite a, a dangerous thing to do, really, because you don't know what you're buying. It's not a prescribed thing that you're getting from the doctor. You don't know what you're actually going to get. Um, and even more worrying is the fact that there seems to be an increasing number of students that are using these drugs because there's pressure on them to get good grades and they think that they can use these drugs to increase their attention. Well, actually... The adolescent brain and the 20-something-year-old brain is really plastic and we don't know the effects that these cognitive enhancers will have in the long term. And really, if you want to enhance your cognition, then why not use the tried and tested methods? So that's exercise and sleep. I thought you were going to say coffee. And coffee as well. <laughs> Marcus de Sotoy, professor of maths at Oxford, uh, was on this programme and said, mathematician is a machine for converting coffee into mathematical formulae and papers. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, with Hannah Critchlow and with Dave Ansell. We're answering your science questions, so if you have a question you would like us to answer for you, why not get in touch now? You can go on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can send us an email, the old-fashioned electronic way, chris at thenakedscientists.com. Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. And Hannah, you've been looking at some interesting things, again on the neuroscience theme, from California. This time they're actually in Washington DC, I think, aren't they? That's correct, yeah. It's Washington DC. And over the last week, over 32,000 neuroscientists from around the world converged for the 2011 Society for Neuroscience Conference, which included a whopping over 16,000 scientific presentations. You'd have to go faster than the speed of light to attend all of those. Presumably <laughs> it's not intended that you should go to all of them. I think, yeah, there's um, a programme tracker and you can pick and choose which sessions you want to go to, but apparently you should be taking your trainers because your feet might hurt at the end of the conference from all the traipsing around. So what the were the highlights sessions. then? So there were a few highlights and one of the sessions on stress was particularly interesting. Christopher Morgan at the University of Pennsylvania Pennsylvania showed that stress experienced by a pregnant mouse can affect the subsequent behaviour of her sons 
and even her son's sons. So exposing pregnant females to stressors, like the smell of a fox during pregnancy, seems to trigger heritable changes that make subsequent generations of males more stress-sensitive themselves and also have lower levels of the hormone testosterone. The effect, the researchers found, is down to changes in the levels of a family of gene products called microRNAs, which are used to control the activities of other genes. And exposure to stress switches the profile of these microRNAs so that the brain of developing male fetuses express the same gene pattern as the brains of developing females, triggering a feminising effect. And because the changes are brought about by what are called epigenetic modifications, this is where chemical groups are added to DNA to control the activity of certain gene sequences, the effects are also inherited by future generations. So this shows that mothers exposed to stress at a critical point in pregnancy could adversely affect the brain development of male offspring. That said, we need to stress ourselves that this is a study done in mice and we don't know yet whether the same applies to humans. Although there are experiments done in humans, not necessarily on the brain, admittedly, but showing that if a female human is pregnant and subject to stress, and I'm thinking there was a paper published in 2008 by Baz Hymans from the Netherlands. He was looking at at women's children, and these were women who had been exposed to the Dutch hunger winter during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. And these individuals now carry changes in their DNA and genes that control things like weight and the way you handle sugar and they have much higher blood pressure, a higher risk of obesity, a higher risk of stroke and heart disease compared with other members of their family. And it's thought that this is because of one of these epigenetic modifications. It seems that epigenetics and neuroscience and behaviour, well, epigenetics seems to be having an increasing effect on our behaviour and, and we're, we're really learning a lot more about these these changes in the epigenome, as it's called. Another thing that was a highlight at the SFN meeting was a public lecture series called Dialogues in Society, and this year's topic was timely. It focused on how behaviour and its biological bases drive the economy. So Dr Robert Schiller, who's an economist, together with a panel of neuroscientists, discussed the role of decision-making in driving the volatility of money markets, currencies, stocks and commodities. What they were asking is whether an understanding of the biological mechanisms of reward, anticipation, risk-taking and emotion also plays out in financial scenarios too. And this is a relatively new area of inquiry called neuroeconomics. Indeed, we've had John Coates on the programme. He's from Cambridge University. He actually did some wonderful studies that he published a few years ago where what he was doing was looking at the testosterone and cortisol levels, two hormones, in traders on trading floors. And what he found is that people who had higher testosterone took bigger risks and made more money, and people who had higher cortisol because they'd had their fingers burnt financially tended to be very risk-averse. And he could show that the boom and bust cycle of the financial markets correlates with the levels of these hormones so it kind of fits together it does doesn't it yeah there was also a session on risk aversion and decision making which looked at how the brain tries to maximize the sizes of rewards and minimize losses including in gambling settings and danish scientist dr julian macavano found that a drug called ketanserin which blocks certain receptors for brain transmitter chemical serotonin makes people less likely to take a gambling risk but only after they've already suffered a loss that they judge to be unfair so according to macavano when gambling people People tend to be more sensitive to potential losses than gains of similar amounts, indicating that loss avoidance plays a major role when we make risky decisions. He also points out that the finding may have clinical significance because patients with mood and anxiety disorders, some of which are associated with dysfunctions in serotonin transmission, often overemphasise the impact of negative outcomes. 
Thanks, Hannah. I think I'll invest in that pair of trainers before I head to that meeting, but it does sound really fascinating. Thank you for that update. Dave, uh, Shane is on the line and wants to follow up on your neutrino story. Hello, Shane. Hi. Go ahead. Following the um, reconfirmed results that uh, a neutrino can travel faster than light, um, how does it follow that, um, this is what I don't understand, how does it follow that time travel could be uh, possible? Essentially, if you take all of Einstein's equations, the first thing it says is that to go at the speed of light, you need an infinite amount of energy, which kind of means that going any faster of it, and if you go any faster than the speed of light, if you get to go at the speed of light, you need an infinite amount of energy and all the equations explode and everything breaks. But if you you can kind of, if you put the numbers where you're going faster than the speed of light in there, you sort of get some results which sort of seem a bit meaningful. Um, it sort of gives the appearance that um, light that time appears to be going backwards for you if you were sort of sitting on the neutrino. And it kind of essentially makes the direction which you're traveling in seem to look a bit mathematically look more like a time axis and and time look more like a normal um, axis. So it's possible that um, space and time gets really confused for you if you're going faster than the speed of light. Um, But fundamentally, what I said at the beginning was that all of our sort of maths, all of our physics breaks if you can go faster than the speed of light, which means we don't really know until we can actually test it and we get a better theory. Thank you for that question, Shane. Just to follow up, Alan Scott has got in touch on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash thenakedscientist if you'd like to follow up there too. He says, what are the implications of faster-than-light neutrinos? What aspects of the Einstein model does this change? I mean, fundamentally, the whole thing is, is built, assuming that the, fast, <laughs> the, the whole thing is working on the kind of axiom, the assumption that the speed of light is the maximum speed you can go. I mean, there are possibly some ways in which you could conceive that it wouldn't entirely break it. I mean, possibly if, if space was really kind of curved, um, and space is a bit curved on Earth because there's a load of mass near us and mass bends space, you could imagine conceivably that, that maybe the neutrinos are kind of taking a shortcut around the curve or something odd. But yes, we don't know, fundamentally. We need to, people need to do more. We don't even know that the results are right, real or not. Just pausing from the science questions for a second to look at an important research question that's been answered by researchers from Cambridge University this week. Dr Dennis Burdikoff is a neuroscientist. He's with us and he's been looking at how the brain ensures that we eat a balanced diet. Dennis, welcome. Hello. Well, first of all, why is it important that the brain can register what we're eating? I think it's important for two reasons. The first of those is that in order to respond to energy deficiency, sort of to a fall of nutrients in our blood, we need to change our behavior. We need to change eating behavior. We need to find food and so on, or stop eating if we're getting too many nutrients. And the behavior is controlled by the brain. So that's why it's important for the brain itself to sense uh, the nutrients uh, in the body. But also, not just pile in tons of glucose and nothing else. It, it, in some way, the brain knows what particular micronutrients, because if you study an animal in its natural environment, it tends to eat a diet that's right for it, arguing there's something behavioural about searching out the right foods that are right for that animal's metabolism. That's correct, and, 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 and it's been quite mysterious how the brain does this because most studies looked at effects of glucose on, on special brain cells which regulate um, alertness and, and food-seeking. How things like protein components and fats are sensed has been much more elusive in, in mechanistic terms. So how did you set about trying to answer that then, to work out what the brain is doing to register when I go for dinner what micronutrients I've consumed? So we, we were uh, originally motivated by, by the recent findings that um, 
our diet and our sleep uh, patterns are closely related. You can kind of mess up your sleep by eating a high-fat diet. And on the other hand, if you mess up your sleep, if you have jet lag and so on, you can overconsume food and, and develop obesity and diabetes. And we were actually working on, on brain cells that regulate both uh, wakefulness and feeding. They stimulate wakefulness and, 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 and they drive feeding. And, and we were putting different nutrients on these cells to see whether these cells themselves as well as controlling behavior, can actually measure what nutrient levels uh, we get in the body. In other words, you squirt some glucose onto them, some sugar, they might change their activity. But then you could also ask, well, what happens if I give them a dose of amino acids, the building blocks of proteins, for example? Exactly. So we started with sugar about five years ago, and and we we found out that, amazingly, if if you increase the concentration of sugar around these brain cells uh, called uh, orexin uh, neurons, then the cells fall silent and they don't uh, emit these impulses anymore that, that drive uh, wakefulness and, and food seeking. So more recently, sort of this year, we asked, um, what about other uh, components of meals? We don't just eat glucose. There is always some protein around. So we mix together an amino acid mixture uh, based on uh, egg white composition. So uh, these proteins in egg white uh, get digested to a certain combination of amino acids. And, and, and it's known at what concentrations uh, these amino acids reach the brain. So we mix this together and we put them on those uh, wakefulness-promoting orexin neurons. And we expected the cells to fall silent because glucose silences them. But actually, we found that these uh, egg white-like amino acids uh, stimulate this wakefulness-promoting neurons. So in other words, they are registering some of the micronutrients that we're eating. So there are specific cells that are specifically sensitive to some of the things that are coming into the body. Absolutely. So in the brain region called uh, the hypothalamus, there there are several populations of cells that can sense nutrients selectively. But the new thing that we found that all nutrients don't do the same thing. Some um, nutrients can upregulate the activity of, of these brain cells, which stimulate food seeking behavior. Other nutrients can, can shut them down. And we think we now are looking at a population of cells that control uh, the balance between different uh, uh, nutrients uh, in the diet. If you look at amino acids, because they, don't, they come in two flavors, don't they? They come in the kinds that we can make in the body. They also come in the other flavor, the kind we can't make in the body and we have to eat. And if you become deficient in those, you have metabolic problems. So are these cells differentially sensitive to those different flavors, for want of a better word, of amino acids? They they seem to be extremely uh, differential to the two groups amino acids. So um, the the essential amino acids, the, the amino acids you cannot make and you need to consume, these cells effectively do not see um, but the non-essential amino acids are potent stimuli of these uh, cells that drive feeding. So we think uh, th- the point of this is that if you consume a meal which is unbalanced and it has too many amino acids that um, you can make in the body and that you don't really need, uh, these cells will make you keep eating until you uh, find and consume essential amino acids, thereby providing the body what it really needs. Does this shed any light on the claim that if you want to not end up hungry again by 11 o'clock in the morning, eat a big fried breakfast that has got loads of protein in it. You know, the bacon and the eggs actually help to stave off hunger for longer. Does it, does it help us to understand why that might be true? Well, actually, um, it, it's almost the opposite of what you'd expect. You, th- you think if you eat a lot of proteins, especially proteins rich in non-essential amino acids, 
you would actually uh, uh, you might get um, hungrier uh, quicker, but you also feel more alert. So these cells will will make you more alert, possibly more efficient uh, at work if you eat a protein rich uh, breakfast. Another thing these cells do, apart from driving feeding, they actually tell the body to burn calories through thermogenesis and so on. So their net effect on, on calories is actually negative. So they, they tell you to burn more calories uh, than the calories you consume. So these cells will kind of, they might make you hungry, but they will make you more alert and they would actually keep your body weight down overall. So if we could target these neurons then in people who have a tendency to overeat, we could make them burn more energy, but maybe also eat less in the first place. So their weight would come down for two reasons. Well, absolutely. That's the exciting thing. Possibly we could find a dietary combination of nutrients now um, which can tune the cells and control body weight as well as alertness, and that's what we're working on right now. Super. We'll leave it there for a second. That's Dennis Burdikoff. He's from Cambridge University. He published the work he's just been talking to you about in the journal Neuron this week. So you can look it up there if you want to. But he's also with us. So if you would like to ask him any questions, then send them in now, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Uh, David is in Fincham and has a question for you, Dave. Hello, David. Hello there. How are you? Far away. Uh, well, actually, I've got two questions because one question sort of run into another one. One is, how can a spaceship change direction in space when... Unless I was misinformed, I was told it is a vacuum. So it's got nothing to thrust against. And the second question is, um, I'm old enough to remember Sputnik 1 going up and it didn't stay up very long, although I was told it was about 500 miles up. But now our, um, I understand the satellites we've got up there now aren't up as high, but they stay up for longer. How is that? Okay, um, sort of for the first one. Um, the way a spaceship changes direction, accelerates, decelerates in space is by pushing on something. Um, it does push on something, but because there's nothing up there, it's got to take the thing it's pushing on with it. And the thing it pushes on is fuel, so it um, maybe burns um, hydrogen and oxygen. Those two react, get very hot, and you get very, very hot water flying out very quickly out the back. It's a bit like if you've ever fired a gun, the gun fires a bullet out one way, but uh, the gun gets kicked backwards into your shoulder in the other direction with an equal and opposite um, amount of momentum. So if you imagine a spaceship's a bit like a, a gun firing lots of bullets in one direction, so it gets pushed in the other direction. Um, I don't know. Oh, the, the Sputnik one. There's two. There's a couple of reasons why that might be. I don't know immediately off the top of the head why it totally is. Um, things like the International Space Station, which is flying at about a couple hundred kilometres up, it does fall downwards relatively quickly, but it has a, has a rocket on it which keeps pushing it up occasionally. And they have to send up more fuel for that quite regularly, and that's one of the major things they have to do to keep it running, as well as taking up food for the astronauts and things for them to do. Um, the other thing is that just because the orbit was at the maximum 500 miles doesn't mean the whole orbit was at 500 miles. It could quite easily have been quite elliptical. So rather than being exactly cir circular, if it was very elliptical, the lowest point of the orbit could have been very low, maybe 150 um, kilometres up, something like that, at which point when it came in the low bit, it would go through quite a lot of atmosphere. It would get slowed down a lot. And so its orbit would decay away quite quickly, even though the highest point of its orbit was relatively high. Dave, thank you very much. Hannah? So very shortly we'll be meeting some of the world's most venomous snakes and later on Diana will be asking if black holes ever collide. If you want to get in touch, tweet at Naked Scientists right on our Facebook page. That's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash Facebook or drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists.
You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell and with Hannah Critchlow. It's our science phone-in extravaganza, all your science questions getting answered. Um, Dave. I've got a question here, probably for you, Chris, from David Michaels. He's saying that when someone buys some chips or crisps or something like that from a vending machine, um, they take their change and they use the same hand to eat with. Is this unwise? Is it dubious stuff on those coins and on that money? Ooh. <laughs> it's interesting because uh, I went looking at this because that's quite an interesting question. Um, and I went to several sources. One of them was the book I wrote in Australia. Uh, it's called Stripping Down Science. It's out last year. And I wrote a chapter in there called Sugar and Spice and All Things Nice and E. coli. And the, the first line is, if girls are made of sugar and spice and all things nice, why are their hands covered in E. coli? This is actually a report on a lady called Val Curtis from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine on the um, Global Hand Washing Day project she ran. This is back in 2008. They sent students who are doing a master's with them to prowl up and down the lines of queuing commuters at train stations and public transport places all over Britain on this one day. And they swabbed 400 sets of hands, OK? And they wanted to see what they could grow. Now, I'll just quote from the book because I could never remember all this in one go so I'll just read you what I wrote. I said over 400 commuters consented to have their hands swabbed down to see what was lurking on them the samples went to the microbiology laboratory for cultural identification. Nearly 30% of them tested positive for the presence of faecal bacteria including enterococci and E. coli two common gut bugs. Yuck. And then I say it's actually stratified by what job you did. So manual workers tested positive 10% of the time. They were the best. And professionals like you and me, they came up red-handed about in about a quarter of cases. And I say here, the real typhoid Marys with a whopping 40% contamination rate turned out to be... Do you know what? Either of you? What job? You're going to say scientists, aren't you? No, administrators. How's that for justice? (laughs) Anyway, so also there's a geography here. If you go further up north in Britain, you're more likely to have these bugs in your hands than people in London. And the worst of all, the worst people are bus travellers, apparently. So if if approximately one quarter of rail commuters were found to be carrying more than just their luggage, I said in that book. Anyway, so that proves that people, just by going about their daily business, are covered in muck of a faecal variety. Now, these bugs are not necessarily nasty in the sense that they won't give you very bad dose of gut rot but they are a sign of bad hygiene being practiced right that's the first point then i went and asked well if people are handling money we know that microorganisms will transfer easily between those hands that we now know in a third of cases are covered in stuff and the money and so then i asked well who's done research on what's on money so what i found is that uh, i found ranges from 30 percent of banknotes through to 94% of banknotes are covered in the same sorts of bugs as reported in Val Curtis's study that I wrote about. And also, coins are slightly better than notes for obvious reasons. Metals, if, if they've got iron in them, iron tends to be toxic to some bacteria because it, it sets up oxidative reactions, it breaks down the bugs. Um, copper also tends to be slightly lower carriage rate. Paper money, really nasty. And there's also tra- traces of drugs in there as well. So um, the answer is, yeah, there's probably all kinds of nastiness all over those banknotes. Eat them. At your at your peril. I mean, the point that's being made, right, is I, I find this funny. When you go to restaurants and things, or those fast food outlets, the people are wearing gloves, aren't they? And, and the idea is, I'll put gloves on because then I'm not touching the food I'm going to hand you. And then you hand them the money. Do they take the glove off? No. Do they have someone separate who's collecting the money? No. They make your sandwich with this lovely gloved hand, and then you give them money that they touch with the gloves, and they use the till and everything. And then they go back and make another sandwich. So the bugs are basically going straight on the sandwich. I just, you know, no one spotted the inconsistency in this. How long are the bugs likely to survive on the money? 
not that long because it's quite dry. And so they do tend to perish quite quickly. But if you're using it merely as a sort of vector, where touch your, it's on your skin, it goes on the money, it goes on the person's gloves, then on the food, the bug's very happy because it's now on the food. There's lots of staph going on the food. There's lots of other things like E. coli going on the food. Staph is a bad one because Staphylococcus aureus makes a toxin. And that toxin actually uh, is heat stable. So if it gets in the food, the bugs grow, make lots of toxin, it goes in the food and amplifies up, then even if you heat the food up to kill the bug, the toxin is still there and you get gut rot afterwards. That's bad. So you don't want that. So watch out. If they're wearing gloves and then they take money off you, make sure they change their gloves afterwards. Hannah. Thanks, Chris. That was disgusting. Um, (laughs) Some of the world's most venomous snakes can be found at the Alistair Reed Venom Research Unit in the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. These snakes are used to save lives by helping to produce anti-venom medications. And Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson has been to find out how and began by handing her microphone to the venom unit's head, Robert Harrison, to record the puffs of a puff adder. I'm just going to open the cage... The snake just bit the microphone. But you can see how very, very alarming that sound is. Indeed. But even in daylight, the snakes inside Liverpool's Venom unit are scary. Get too close and, as Nicholas Casewell explains, your chances of survival are slim. The venoms that they have are incredibly potent. They've got a, a really... that When they're injected into your bloodstream, can really do horrible damage to your body. So you can have effects such as bleeding from your eyes and from your gums. You can have what we call tissue necrosis, where your tissue actually dies. So you'll often see that when people are bitten on their feet or on their hands, the tissue kind of turn, eventually turns black, and this can often lead to amputations. And then the snakes we're actually with here, the mambas, for example, these are what we call neurotoxic snakes. When they um, inject their venom, they stop the prey moving, that's how they're able to eat them. And they do this by injecting their venom, which actually stops the animals from breathing, so they get paralysed. Rob, you're the head of the unit here. Are the snakes representative from one area in particular? We primarily have a focus on the snakes here from Africa because we're trying to do something about the snake bite problem in Africa. How serious a problem is snake bite in Africa? It's very serious. It's been estimated that at least 32,000 people die every year from snake bite. And also there's been something like eight to 9,000 amputations as a result of snake bite. In some areas of Africa, particularly the rural savanna areas, it's not unusual to have hospitals where 7 out of 10 patients are snakebite victims. The snakes are collected from Africa and brought to Liverpool, where the venom is extracted and sent to anti-venom manufacturers in Wales and Costa Rica. Small, subtoxic doses in animals then generate an immune response so that antibodies can be collected to make an anti-venom. 
The antivenom that you use is specific to the species of snake that was used to make the antivenom. And this is really the problem that we have with antivenom production, that we haven't been able to produce, say, an antivenom that works against every species. There are some antivenoms which are made where you use the venom of multiple species to make the antivenom. Sort of one bite fixes all, cures all. Kind of, (laughs) that's right. But the problem is then that the antivenom is specific to three venoms, say, for example. And this is a problem because it means that whichever snake you're bitten by, the antibodies are only specific to a third of that. And that means that you need three times the dose of your antivenom, which of course is far more expensive for people, particularly poor people. It also brings in some potential safety issues as well because large amounts of antivenoms can cause problems. So how do you improve the antivenoms that are available then? Well, one thing that we're looking at doing here in Liverpool is trying to improve the use of an antivenom against more than just the species that it was uh, used to make that uh, antivenom. And we've been looking at saw-scale vipers, which are quite small African snakes. Up to 80% of all the deaths in Africa are by saw-scale vipers. So what we've looked at doing is, in the laboratory, we've been looking at testing the antivenom that exists against West African saw-scale viper venom. And we've been trying to see whether this would also work against other saw-scale vipers from, say, North Africa and East Africa. And we were really surprised and delighted to find out that it did work in the laboratory. We've been able to show that we can prevent um, lethal effects of this venom with the antivenom used for West Africa. And that's really important because it means that we can look at expanding the kind of use of the antivenom from one small geographic region to a much larger region. And that's good for patients and it's also important for the antivenom manufacturers because it increases the demand for their product and that means that they can reduce the cost to poor people. Nicholas Casewell and Robert Harrison from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine Venom Research Unit. That report was from Sue Nelson and you can hear the full interview with added snakes on the Planet Earth podcast at thenakedscientists.com forward slash planet earth. Thank you Hannah. Uh, Now Chris has been waiting very patiently for us. Hello, Chris. Hello. Far away. A colony of bees seems to me to have the same DNA as the rest of them. Uh, they, they, they seem to generate the new queen from within their own colony, and the queen is mated by worker bees from within the beehive. And so it seems that the DNA for the whole colony would in fact be the same. Now, if people did this, uh, like the royal families have done in Europe in the past, they suffer from various sort of diseases, including things like haemophilia. Uh, and I just wondered why, why this doesn't happen to bees. OK, Chris. Um, just to change a couple of th- things to your summary you gave there. Well, actually, the bees aren't all genetically identical. What happens is that a queen bee comes out of the nest when she's young and she releases a pheromone and she attracts something like up to 16,000 male bees called drones. And these male bees, then about 200 of them are lucky enough to mate with her and she will collect millions and millions of sperm that she then goes back to the nest with and uses for the rest of her life, maybe seven years or more, just to fertilise eggs. So she's got a mixture of sperm, some different drones there. That's the first point. But the drones are all themselves haploid. In other words, they only actually have they actually only have one set of genetic material. So all of their sperm are genetically identical. And the effect of this is that the worker bees, which are all female actually, because they uh, they're, they're not haploid, they're diploid, they actually have both male and female uh, chromosomes 
enzymes in them. Um, as a result, they are all 75% genetically identical to each other. Um, so if they actually were to start reproducing, they would produce less genetic diversity in the colony than if the queen reproduces by mating with a drone using this sperm she's got stored. So it's slightly more subtle than you thought. And it does actually work very, very well because the bees are a collective colony. The sisters, because they're also so closely related, these workers, they are actually working towards helping the queen to reproduce because then their own genes are being passed on um, more efficiently than if they were to actually start mating internally within the colony. And the, the queen does actually police this. She does actually stop the workers trying to reproduce. But as the queen gets older, this can occasionally begin to happen. It's a sort of escape. Good question, though. Thank you very much. Right, it's kitchen science experimental time. Dave? Okay, this week's kitchen science is really, really simple. All you need to do is take a normal balloon, a round balloon, not a long, thin one, and then push a coin in through the neck of the balloon. So I've got one here which I've already pushed in. And everyone else in the studio has got one as well. So if we now blow up these balloons... Okay, and I have a balloon which has got a coin. There's a f- I've got a 5p. It's sitting right at the bottom of my balloon. You can That's see right. it. That's um, right. Yeah. I've got a 1p, so we'll start off with my one. Um, we won't bother tying them off, though. You can tie them off. That's fine. Um, now, what, what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to swirl my balloon around and around and cause the coin inside to sort of spin around. So it's a bit like when you're swirling a cocktail or something. So. And if you look at that, you can see the coin is actually rolling edge-on around the middle of the balloon. Yes, it's gone right around the girth, the middle fat part of the balloon. It's edge-on, it's rolling around inside like a, like a motorcyclist going around in a cage, you know, when they go up the wall and stuff, it's doing that. Exactly like that. So what's happening is that in order to go in a circle, the coin has got to have a force pushing it inwards so it wants to go in a straight line, as Newton worked out. Um, and so in order to go in a circle, it's got to have force pushing it in. From the shape of the balloon, in order to produce an inwards force, it's also got to push, produce an upwards force. So as the coin goes around, if it goes fast enough, it gets put, that upwards force is greater than gravity, it goes upwards and it keeps on going upwards until the balloon starts to bend back in again, at which point it gets pushed, pushed down, downwards. So, so it stops so, there, on the so middle. It spins around the middle. Right. Um, and so that's quite cute. But now I want you to try um, your one, Hannah, which is actually a... Um, Hannah's a, got a nut. nut. Yeah, a metal nut in my balloon, so I'm just... Right, turn around. Oh, it's making a really different sound. Why is... That's bizarre. Why is that? <laughs> I like that. Well, if you hold the balloon securely, you can actually get a, get oh, a better swirl. Am I doing this swirl. wrong? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a really bizarre sound. Okay, because the nut is... it's rolling around the inside. It's rolling around in the same way. But because the nut is six-sided, as it rolls, it bounces up and down. As it bounces up and down, it causes the balloon to bounce, to vibrate. And that vibration vibrates the air and you get this sound. And now, Chris, if you'd like to try your one. Okay, so I've got the five PPs. You get this really strange high That's pitch That's bizarre. Noise. So, and again, the balloon, the coin is whizzing around on the inside, on its edge, skating around inside. So why is that happening? Why do I get this? If you compare that to my one P coin, which is almost silent. Okay, the five P coin has got milling on the side. It's got these little bumps. Yeah. And because the little bumps are much closer together than with the coin, um, there's far more vibrations every second. If you have more vibrations every second, you can have a higher-pitched noise, so you get this very high-pitched noise. But it's a bit quieter than the coin because the lumps are much smaller, so it isn't bouncing as much. And how does this apply to the real world? Well, one way in which it applies is that you're getting this actually very, very small vibration from your coin, particularly Chris's coin, but you're still able to hear it, and that's because the balloon is acting a bit like the sounding box in a violin or a um, guitar, so which is taking a very, very small vibration on the string and turning and attaching that very efficiently into the air so you can hear it loudly on the other side of the room. 
Absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much, Dave. There's a write-up and some funky pictures of that experiment on our website, which you can go to if you want to find out more about the science involved, or how to do it, or any of the about 300 other kitchen science experiments that Dave has now dreamt up. You go to nakedscientists.com slash kitchen science. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the Naked Scientists, science that's fundamentally more fun. And this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell, the kitchen science man, and Hannah Critchlow. Now, we've got some great questions coming in. If you'd like to send in a question, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Harmon Hurtink on our Facebook page, Dave, he's wondering, being a bit of a Star Wars fan, um, whether it's possible or not to make a lightsaber. This is actually, he says, ostensibly for his two sons, Lucas and Tristan, who are wondering this, but one does wonder whether Harmon actually really is asking for himself. I'm just kidding. What do you think? Depends exactly what you mean by a lightsaber. Producing a kind of beam of light which is coming out of an object which is incredibly powerful and can cut through things, that's not impossible. We certainly couldn't get anything nearly as powerful as that. We can get a laser that powerful in anything like that size of container. Um, but we can get lasers which will cut through things that tend to be the size of a house, but we'll ignore that point for the moment. Um, but the problem is making light suddenly stop at the end of you know, sort of a two-foot length. And also um, light doesn't interact with other light. So causing so so you couldn't have sword fights with them. They would just go straight through each other and not affect each other. You might conceive you'd be able to do it. Maybe you can make a plasma saber so you can somehow constrain some very, very hot plasma into a tube um, magnetically or something conceivably. I think it'd be difficult, but just about possible. But certainly not with light. Dave, thank you. I've got a lovely one here from Tyler Ramage who says, is there any truth to dogs being able to sniff out cancer? If so, can you explain it? Yes, people have done lots of studies on this. The most recent uh, that I read was a study where they took a whole bunch of dogs and exposed them to the urine of patients who had bladder cancer. And every time the dogs smelt that, they were given a treat. And so, in other words, the dogs associated the smell of the urine from a bladder cancer patient with getting a treat compared with a... Uh, bladder can- uh, a non-bladder cancer control and they were able to produce dogs which when you put urine in front of them from patients who had known bladder cancer they would sit down or bark or, or do whatever they've been trained to do and when they did these trials they found one patient who was supposed to be in the control group who consistently the dogs all picked and said this person has bladder cancer. In fact, when they imaged that person, they had a covert renal cancer that was a very early stage, and the person's life was saved because they then went in and did it. They're now developing this technology, and in fact generating e-noses with the aim of uh, sniffing out lung cancers and other things like that, because cancers do change your metabolism, and therefore the smell of your body. And so this can be detected, and dogs just have a very sensitive nose for doing it. Hannah? That's fascinating. But now, on the subject of hard questions, here's Diana O'Carroll, who's been grappling with the cosmological question of the week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education, from alpha to omega. This week, how two black holes form a hole. Hello, my name's Clive Plum from Sutton Coalfield. What I'd like to know is... What happens when two black holes collide? So when two deformed bits of space-time collide, what sort of a mess do they produce? Well, I'm Martin Rees, Master of Trinity from the Institute of Astronomy as well. One of the things we've learned in the last ten years or so is that in the centre of every galaxy there lurks a black hole, which is as massive as a million or even several billion suns. It's not quite clear how this black hole formed, 
but we believe that its formation happened at the same time as the galaxy formed and that the black hole grew as the galaxy grew. We also know that one way galaxies grow is by merging with each other. Two small galaxies get close and eventually fall together and make one bigger galaxy. Now, if two galaxies merge and each has a black hole at its center, then the black holes will, of course, spiral towards the center of the common system and form a binary orbiting around each other. And the question then is, what happens? We think what happens is that various drag forces bring the holes close enough that so-called gravitational radiation then carries away more energy. Gravitational radiation is something predicted by Einstein's theory to happen whenever a gravitational field changes rapidly. So when two black holes get close enough, then gravitational radiation from them carries away a lot of energy, and that brings them closer and closer until they eventually merge into a single black hole. And in the final coalescence, a huge burst of gravitational radiation is emitted, and this is a challenge to detect. But the biggest events of all would be the gravitational bursts from these supermassive black holes which merge, and there are plans to have arrays in space which could detect the slight jitter in space that happens when these black holes merge. The meeting of two black holes will produce a large one, and it will also produce lots of energy in the form of gravity waves. But that happens when the two black holes are of different size. So we believe that these black holes uh, merge, and it's by this process that eventually some of them accumulate masses, as much as in some cases, five billion times the mass of the sun. There's another interesting consequence. It's been possible for the last few years to actually do computations of what would happen when two black holes merge. And when the black holes are of an equal mass, then you get a rather interesting effect, namely a recoil. The final merged black hole doesn't necessarily sit in the centre of the merged galaxy. It's given a kick. And sometimes this kick could be big enough to expel the merged black hole from the galaxy it's in. So the final thought I'd leave you with is that there could be some of these huge black holes hurtling through intergalactic space, having been kicked out by the huge recoil speed from the galaxy in which they formed. So beware of a supermassive black hole flying through space like a very dark, very heavy juggernaut of the skies. After that comes next week's question from Donna Colson. While standing in front of the mirror in my bathroom, I can see a reflection of the TV screen from the bedroom. It is blurry when my glasses are off and much clearer when I put my glasses on. One morning I was interested in a show on TV while I was drying my hair, so I figured I could watch what was going on if I put my face very close to the mirror while I dried my hair. I tried, but no matter how close I got to the mirror, the reflected image of the TV stayed blurry. I was close enough to where I normally can see an object clearly without my glasses. Why would that be? Thank you. Why is it difficult to focus on a reflection at a distance you should be able to see when you're not wearing glasses? Let us know what you think or what you've experienced by emailing chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can write on the forum at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. You can Twitter at Naked Scientists or say hello on our Facebook page. Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. 
That's it for this week, though. We've run out of time. Thank you very much to Hannah Critchlow and Dave Ansell and also our production team, Ben Vausler and Mira Senthalingam. Join us next week to find out all about the science of image analysis, cameras and lenses when we reveal the technology that is enabling scientists to see individual cells and molecules oozing out of blood vessels and making their way into tissues. In the meantime, thank you for listening to The Naked Scientist. Send your questions in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Have a great week and see you next time. Bye-bye. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by The Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. 